0: All right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to our study of Nehemiah. We've done some of the preliminary work at the end of the last recorded session. So for those of you... Paying attention online or listening to this later, if you want the introductory material, you're going to have to go to the latter half of the last session we did. I'm probably wrapping up Ezra and then jumping into some of the preliminary material with Nehemiah. Today we'll jump into the text proper and get going. Obviously, very closely connected historically and thematically with the events of Ezra. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. By way of brief reintroduction, page seven thirty-eight in your Lutheran Study Bible. At the very top, you'll see a timeline, and of course, um, you'll remember that the temple was destroyed in five eighty-seven B.C. along with, you know, Jerusalem. It's the start of the the exile proper. Um, as we looked at Ezra, we looked at the various decrees of the kings. Of course, Cyrus the first that says, "Okay, you can go," and then it's later taken back. You you know, you can go, but you you can't really rebuild. So there was all kinds of shenanigans going on. Um, but finally, the second temple is completed in 516. Um, that doesn't mean Jerusalem was totally restored, but the second temple was completed. And then as you follow along the timeline, Nehemiah leads work on the walls of Jerusalem, 445 B.C., so 31 years later. And that's that's a lot of... Um, You know, that's kind of a lot of what we're going to be looking at. Of course, on that timeline, it ends with 434 BC, Nehemiah returns to Susa. Well, Susa is where the story begins in Nehemiah 1.1. So there you have the return. But this is roughly, broadly, the time frame in which we are in. Um, If you turn to chapter 1, verse 1, let's just read um, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. All right, so clear enough so far, he's in Susa and as we're going to find out, he is the cupbearer of Artaxerxes. who is in the capital city here. Uh, uh, and you've got um, these people who return from Jerusalem. And of course, Nehemiah, being a conscientious and interested, faithful Jew, asked them, how, how's it going? Verse 3, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. It's not going good. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Okay, if we look at the study note on 1.1, we see Nehemiah means the Lord has comforted. And we learn here, of course, he's a prominent man exiled from Judah. He serves as the cupbearer. Do we get that as early as verse 11? We must. Um, but we certainly get this in, uh, later on in chapter 2. No, we do get that right there at the, uh, right at the end of chapter 1, verse 11. And um, what else can we say here? The 20th year. This is the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes. And we're also told that some 12 years intervene between the end of the book of Ezra and this chapter. Artaxerxes I was the son of Asuharis, the ruler noted in Ezra 4.6. And, uh, I'm sorry, I've got scribbles all over my Bible here and I can't even make out what that is. Esther. Yeah, thank you. EST, Esther. And then the next, um, so, So, yeah, just noting the grammar, I was the first person. Parts of the book of Nehemiah are written in the first person. These are sometimes referred to as, quote-unquote, Nehemiah's memoirs. Susa is located in what is the uh, now southern Iran, and it was the capital of ancient Elam, 200 miles east of Babylon. I need to stop writing in my notes. I hope that says east, east of Babylon. And then here's the reason. Persian kings used Susa as a winter residence. So that's why they're not in the normal capital city. Okay, so that sets the stage. There, you know, he is there with Artaxerxes. Nothing is happening in terms of the wall and gates of Jerusalem. This needs to get remedied. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned. For days, It's very much like what we saw with Ezra, where there's this physical manifestation, you know. I, this is something that definitely I kind of reflect on, and it, pl- it plagues me as a modern Westerner that my repentance is almost always done entirely in my mind without hardly any bodily representation of it. And without any, I mean, I could hardly imagine repenting for full-on days. Um, I mean, maybe... <laughs> Maybe it's been forced upon me. I don't, I'd have to think by a, a, little, a little autobiographically there. But, but this is interesting. Um, both in Ezra and Nehemiah, we see these kinds of expressions. And we see this um, physical, Ezra tears his robes. There's fasting that takes place. And it takes place over a period of days, as we read here. I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Okay, well this language harkens all the way back to the Mosaic Covenant and reminds us of God rescuing the people from Israel claiming them as his own and giving them the covenant of course the law who God is and what his will for his people is but then the sacrifices as well and when you transgress this law in this you can find the forgiveness of sins communicated to you the heart of this covenant is the promise made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob the promise of a Messiah who's going to come and conquer the serpent crushing his head, putting an end to sin and death and the reign of, of the serpent, the reign of the devil. So this is at the heart of um, the piety at this time, at Nehemiah's time. So this, this language of God keeping covenant and steadfast love, um, that's a technical term there um, referring to God's faithfulness. And of course, you know, no doubt about it, and he's going to reflect on this, that insofar as man falls away from the covenant, uh, God rightly punishes him and rightly leads him back to repentance. There's consequence to the breaking of the covenant. And yet God is the one who keeps covenant. He's the one who keeps his side of the bargain. And that even goes so far as to say he keeps his side of the bargain even after the people have totally failed on their side of the bargain and have justly been punished. It doesn't mean that God doesn't keep his covenant. And that's what what Nehemiah is praying on. That's really the, the gospel promise and basis of this prayer. He's appealing to who God is, not only as a God who is just, but as a God who is merciful, a God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, keeps steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. So here we see, as with Ezra, Nehemiah takes on a mediating role in this regard. Both are types and foreshadowing of Christ, who is the one capital M mediator between God and man and he's making appeal to God on on the basis of God's mercy while as we're going to see in just a moment confessing the sins of the people this is the role of a of a mediator and it is the role of Christ Christ even takes that role to the extreme where he bears the sins of the people and not only the sins of the people but the sins of the whole world and bears them as his own that God might have mercy on us and on the whole world. All right, well, as you can tell, this is a lengthy kind of sentence, Um, so we're just picking back up in the middle of it. Hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. You know, interesting detail. They're technically uh, all from Judah, but they retain the name Israel here. Just detail. And of course, he's, he's not only confessing his own sins, but the sins of all the people. Very much a mediating role. And then, he, and then here his, his personal confession comes. Even I and my father's house have sinned. You know, there's no merit or worthiness in me. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So again, you can see how all of this wraps in with the Sinaitic covenant and God's promises to the people. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Well, as far as we can tell, not a direct quote from the Torah, from the books of Moses, but a beautiful and faithful summary of the teaching of the books of Moses and of the covenant in specific. So what happens if the, if the people break covenant right, and break it, here we're talking about you know, manifest idolatry, having other gods. Right? Well, God rightfully, justly scatters them among the people. If you've chosen to have other gods, the gods of the people, then you can be just like them. Out you go. So, um, it's not as if God is uh, God is somehow um, overly scrupulous or narrow or nitpicking here. I mean, He is patient and long-suffering, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, but not without His limits. And, yeah, when those limits are, are pushed by the unfaithfulness of the people, then it it becomes true that I will scatter you among the peoples. And then and then what then? Is that the end of it? No. Because God is so superabundantly good and merciful and gracious even now, even then, even after this, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, here kind of a bit of hyperbole, scattered, you know, so far abroad. From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Referring, referring, of course, in the first sense, uh, back here to uh, Jerusalem and back to the temple. But in this, what do we see? I think we see a microcosm of God's overarching plan, which is to grab all his faithful people everywhere and draw us into the true temple, which is his son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have full and complete atonement, in whom we have full and complete communion with God, who's dwelling places with man, and that foretaste of the heavenly feast, the climax of this age which is to come, revelation right, and being gathered together as one people with one God so I think this is beautiful if you break covenant, you're out but the door's open it's a little bit like the prodigal son, too. Prodigal son goes, he's out. But when he returns, the father's arms are open. And that's, that's the case here. Nehemiah knows this theology, and he prays this theology. You know, and I suppose as an aside, we can learn this from not only Nehemiah, but, but all the, those who pray. And whose prayers are recorded for us in the scriptures? They pray scriptural truths. I think sometimes, um, if your prayer life is like mine, it can atrophy into a kind of Christmas list. Please let this happen and this happen and bless so and so and such and such um, and that's all it is. But there's but but in that sense, it's, um, God hears our prayers, but it's not a very textual prayer it's not a very mature or full prayer in the way that nehemiah and so many others teach us to pray where where we recount and recall who god is and what he's done for us and where we are and what we've done and ask him in this context to to hear our petitions to in the words of nehemiah to have his ears and eyes open to what it is that we're praying not because of our worthiness in fact far from it We are unworthy, but solely because of his graciousness and because he is the God who keeps covenant. Now, we're not looking to the Mosaic covenant. We're looking to the new covenant. Christ crucified for us, the shedding of his blood, that blood that goes into the cup, that cup that goes to our lips, the forgiveness of our sins, this great covenant, an even greater exodus at work, God leading us through this wilderness into the new Heavenly promised land, the new heavenly temple, Won this with his son. Okay, so we have all these things in mind. We can pray this way. And so a little aside here as we consider Nehemiah's very faithful, very biblical, very theological prayer, we can remind ourselves, um, ah, so much to learn here. So much to learn here. The physical manifestation of repentance, the, the weeping, the fasting, the days of this. Uh, the biblical nature of the prayer, the confession, the recounting of God's mercy and and who he is in the past and thus who we want him to be in the present. Such a beautiful teaching on prayer here in this section of Nehemiah. And then what else do we do? I'm I'm sorry if this is a a bit too much digression. I can't help myself. Um, But what was was Ezra? What, What was the theme of Ezra? That God literally, I think, it goes his mercy is for centuries as the people turn their back on him and idolatry. Finally, he goes about punishing them. The final exile comes of uh, Judah, and then it's just mere decades, a mere sliver and percentage of the time they were unfaithful for centuries he punishes them for decades just a little sliver i mean barely even a generation and he's calling them back to rebuild the temples that he might dwell with them and be merciful and this is what we mean when it's god's it's alien for god to be in in a state of wrath and judgment it's not who he by nature is i mean he is just and therefore he is wrathful but that's not you know, sometimes we get this idea about God as if, like, well, he's mostly justice. Like, let's just think of God as justice. And then since we've violated his justice, sort of like the plan B part of God is his mercy in Christ so that he can just go on being just again. That would be a distortion. Even though what we've kind of said is is sort of, like, true in a point-by-point way, over, when you look at the whole picture, it's a distortion. Okay. Um, what do we see in God? We see that he is gracious and merciful and he wants what's right for the people and he's slow to anger and he's patient. He's like a good father. But that's not to say that he's one to be abused and it's not to say that he's not interested in justice. It's not to say that he's without wrath. He's got all these things too because he's good. But like a good father, you know, when when the punishment is done, it's like what father delights in punishing his child? none you not delighted in punishing your child you only do it for the child's good and the sooner you can get it over for them the better the sooner you can get it over for you the better and see this is the heart of God and so even though we can say yes he's just yes he's merciful let's not, let's not line that up in such a way that it's distortive of who he is it is, it, it is against his nature it is not what he desires to do to become wrathful or angry or punish. He does so when he absolutely must. And then even then, what do we learn? He removes that as soon as he possibly can in order to return to his steadfast love and mercy. And so we see that theme in Ezra, and now we see that theme again in Nehemiah. Very instructive for us in terms of seeing God as Father and the way in which he's Father. You know maybe even more valuable if and i don 't know what your experience is, but if you grew up in a household where a father was less than ideal or less than a, an accurate reflection of our heavenly father it 's like okay fine we need to we need to relearn what fatherhood means in a biblical sense. Well, I could hardly point you to two better places in the scriptures that teach this okay, so um, again, I kind of apologize for the digressions here, but i don 't want us to to miss the real theology that's taking place right out of this text, and so easy in these historical texts with all of these references to kind of get lost in the details and the narrative and the history, without really reflecting on the on the the purpose for, uh, for which the Holy Spirit has had these things recorded. All right, so the middle of his prayer, still we're you know just um, picking back up at. Uh, Verse 8, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Now, of course, we know historically, immediately, that's the temple. But what does it mean when when the Son of Mary is given the name Jesus, Jesus means what? Yeah, yeah, Yahweh saves. He, he will be called Jesus, for he will. Save the people from their sins. So when the name is put on Jesus, His, the name of Yahweh, Yahweh saves, dwells there. And so we can see the import there then of this language. That It's a kind of foreshadowing and type that when God makes His name dwell on, on the Son of Mary, He becomes our temple. He becomes our access point. So that neither on this mountain nor on, that is Mount Gerizim, or on Jerusalem on that mountain, um, will God be worshipped, but rather in spirit and in truth, that is, in our, in our Lord Jesus, where God has made his name to dwell. All right, um, so they, verse 10, they are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Now, that language really takes us back to Exodus. That's the, that's the language almost always used for Exodus and what God has done there. So, I, again, I sometimes it's really helpful to think this way, that the, the cross, as it were, of the, the act of salvation, as it were, of the Old Testament is the Exodus. And that makes perfect sense because it's a type and foreshadowing. Remember when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration and Luke tells us what they're talking about? What Jesus is speaking to Moses and Elijah about? His exodus. His leading us not out of slavery from Egypt into some earthly land, but out of slavery to Satan into the new heavens and the new earth. So you can see from the lesser, smaller exodus of the Old Testament, the greater exodus worked by God through the cross of his Son. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Well, what man? Next line. Now I was cupbearer to the king. So, Artaxerxes. Alright, well what's going to happen? He's going to petition Artaxerxes um, that he may go and give aid to his countrymen, to his fellow servants of Yahweh in the rebuilding of of Jerusalem, its walls and gates. Alright, let's pause there. Let's see if you have any reflections, any thoughts, any questions, anything stand out to you. Um, if not, that's fine. Don't. don't
1: I, I was going to ask a question about, this appears in the beginning to be an intercessory prayer where he's praying for all of Israel and their sin. But then in verse 6, it's interesting how he pulls it back uh, and he says, uh, Even I and my father's house have sinned. Mm-hmm. so I I've noticed that a lot of praying in public particularly in groups and so forth it's always intercessory Uncle Joe has cancer you know and so forth I like the fact here that he brought it back and included himself in and then he ends with a strong prayer for himself mm-hmm. your servant and bless me etc yeah so um, I guess, if you could comment a little bit on intercessory prayer and the proper way, I guess, we should pray as in an intercessory. Is it is it wrong to just only pray for other people without?
0: Well, we definitely want to include ourselves in the intercessions. There's a kind of false piety that can take over. I actually have had a couple of Christians say to me, I don't think anyone from this church, so I don't think I'm embarrassing anyone, but I've had a couple of Christians say, I, I never pray for myself, as if that was kind of supposed to impress me. And I said, Whoa, "Well, what are you doing? <laughs> do, do you never pray?" And I gave him a hard time. I said, "Do, do you never pray the Lord's prayer? Because it's not—it's not you know their Father who are in heaven. It's our Father. I'm included in that, right? So even from our Lord's teaching, His disciples teaching us how to pray, uh, we are included in that. And what I think is what I think is so beautiful." You know, as I reflect on this, Barry, um, intercessory prayer, of course, is commanded in the scriptures and commended in the scriptures. We should do it all the time. But what I kind of reflect on, um, and and maybe you're drawing this out as well, you know, while while we're praying for, I forget the examples. You said Uncle Joe's, you know, cancer, or you know, so and so's broken leg, or whatever the case may be. um, How often do we pray, or at least include in our petition, God, that you would look upon them in mercy and forgive their sins? right? That you would give them a clean heart and then if also heal them in body, right? Isn't um, that keeping the main thing the main thing? Yeah. And then that we include ourselves in that because it's not from a place of smugness or self-righteousness. Intercessory prayer never can be. Um, intercessory prayer always includes ourself in it because we're poor, miserable sinners. We're subject to the curse. We have our own sins. It's not from some sort of lofty position of like, well, and you know, some people, some people will say this to me too sometimes, and it's just very unnerving. You know, like, well, no, will you pray? Well, what do you mean, will I? Yeah, yeah, I'll pray, but why? What do you say? Well, because you're a pastor.
2: <laughs> well,. <laughs>
0: It's not as if the Almighty is impressed by that title. <laughs> the Almighty isn't like, oh, well, yeah, you're right. I really didn't listen to Jeremy very much, but then when he became a pastor, suddenly he had my ear. No, 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 no. This is the wrong way of thinking about it. Um, God, God is not a respecter of persons. He is, uh, his ear is open to all of his children. And so as a pastor, of course, I'm happy to pray. Um, but we shouldn't think as though like, oh, well, God hasn't listened to me, maybe he'll listen to this perceived holy guy, quote-unquote. Yeah, well, sorry, I confess my sins every Sunday just, just like everyone else. <laughs> so, um, you know, we do, we do have um, the statement in the scriptures, though, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Of course, foremost there, and this would take a little exegeting, a little discussion, but foremost there, I believe in the mind of James, is Jesus himself. And then second, second to that, yes, those are who are following Jesus. But that would include all Christians in a state of grace, all people who are praying as, as they ought. So, yeah, God, God hears our prayers, and as we intercede for others, um, how good it is to consider things holistically. To not only pray for their bodily healing, but pray for their forgiveness as well. He just
1: reminded me of the John seventeen prayer of Jesus. you know he he begins it with praying for himself and his need, and then he goes on for the intercessory aspect for his disciples and then for all believers uh, in all of humanity, which is great point. I mean, he so a prayer, including when intercessory is, you, know, always include mm. yourself, like Nehemiah did here, which I, I think is excellent. You know, it's a really sp-
0: nice connection you made, Barry. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't even thought that concretely about it, that as you consider the intercessory prayer of Ezra and the intercessory prayer of Nehemiah, that if you were to find that in Jesus, you'd look to John in the upper room discourse before they head out to the garden. Yeah, and they'd have Jesus' example of that prayer. Really profound. Um, the vicar had his hand up. Uh, would it be possible to get him the microphone?
2: Yeah, I think we can um, see a lot of what the, how the early Christians understood uh, sympathia in intercessory prayer, of bearing one another's burdens like that. You know, you hear of Uncle Joe's cancer and so on and so forth. You know, taking that onto yourself and presenting that to the Lord, you know, in the same way that Jesus bore our sicknesses, our sins, all of these things, and he, you know, um, made intercession on our behalf before the Father. You know, we're... You know, following after Christ's image there with this sympatheia, mm-hmm. this this common mutual bearing of one another's mm-hmm. sins, like that.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting thing to think about. I wish that I thought about it more. I wish that I did it more. But when you think of people who have something against you, or maybe even have sinned against you, when you're praying to God, instead like of like, hey, may fire and brimstone fall upon. Them. <laughs> no, but when you're praying, you know, if you are to if you were to say. Father, forgive them these sins, but forgive me also because, you know, in your mind it might be, well, I haven't sinned in that way or in that to that degree. It's like, do I not in and of myself see the same root of sin? If not the deed, maybe the words, if not the words, maybe the thoughts. And anyway, it's a nice way it's a nice way of my comment being kind of one fork and the other, you know, I'm not trying to trying to um, sign, sign Vicar up to what I've just said, but his point being another fork. If you look back to um, verse 6, kind of, kind of both, I think, are trying to articulate this thing that um, Nehemiah does, confessing the sins of the people of Israel. Um, you know, that might lend the impression of like, oh God, look what all these people did. You know, but look at the next line. Which we have sinned against you. You see, and that's kind of, what—that's I think, what we're both saying in maybe different ways, is um, uh, this idea of, of acknowledging our sins along with the sins of others and praying for them. How, how good that would be to consider um, our enemies in that light and pray on, on their behalf. So yeah, intercessory prayer, um, and, and including ourselves in that. And, you know, this, this prayer, if you were to kind of just like break it down to its, to its principal points, Here's who we are, sinners who don't deserve any of your grace and don't deserve the things for which we're asking. Here's who you are, gracious, the one who redeems your people, the one who welcomes your people back even when we've been unfaithful. And here's what we're requesting, not on, not on the basis of our merits, but on the basis of your goodness. Here's who we are. Here's who you are. Here's what we're asking. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful, beautiful frame for Christian prayer and intercessory prayer. Okay, thank you for that insight. All right, so Nehemiah is, what else do we gain then? If he's the cupbearer for the king, we gain some more information about him. Um, the cupbearer isn't some kind of meager servant. As you can see in the study note, Nehemiah was more than a wine steward at the royal table. He was an important official. The king relied on him for protection against assassination by poisoning. And often this too is like not just loyal, not just brave, but like intelligent and kind of a, uh, I mean, I, I think maybe going so far as an advisor would go too far, but um, in the king's, inner circle, respected, etc. Um, so we get a sense for Nehemiah, um, you know, he, he would be about as close to nobility as, as anybody we've seen um, in this era. All right, verse uh, chapter two, verse one, in the month of Nisan. and I think the study Bible points out it took him three months after this prayer. <laughs> <laughs> to find opportunity. Oh, I love this. This is the best. Yeah. In um, Okay, you just got to look at this day. you un- on verse one. All right. So, Nisan, yes, 20th year. More than three months passed before Nehemiah had a good opportunity to request permission from King Artaxerxes to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The king had previously issued a decree that the city not be rebuilt. And that goes back to Ezra 4.2. We saw that there. Okay, here's the part I like. The decree would have to be reversed. Nehemiah also had to observe the rule of the Persian court that no one was to speak unless first spoken to by the king. I always wondered where the origin of that was. (laughs) That was often threatened to us as as children growing up. You do not speak unless you're spoken to. (laughs) It didn't always work that way. Um, What's that? it sure could be an astro, I don't know, off the top of my head. This is, that's all right in the same era. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I kind of wondered, like, the origins of that. Now I know. Now I know. So I've got I've to make this a, a rule in my house. So at the... It'll be the rule of the, of the roadie kitchen table. No one's to speak unless first spoken to. <laughs> <laughs> if you know my kids, you know that's not going to work. <laughs> uh, I thought that was a funny detail. Okay, so anyway, um, three months later, in the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. Why not? Because the king doesn't want a bunch of mopey, sad people around him. You, this is like you've got to be at the height of professionalism. And that means happy and put together and great. So I had not been sad in his presence. And then verse 2, And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, <laughs> seeing that you are not sick? <laughs> Which it might have a level of accusation. Of course, it may be concern, but uh, um, you can see that this kind of uh, underbs Nehemiah a little. And then he says, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Kind of interesting. Yeah, then I was very much afraid. Because like, what's the king at? Like, you know, Nehemiah wasn't putting on a mopey face to try to gain his audience. <laughs> but rather, he had kind of been discovered. And what is this? And now, now why is he afraid? Well, if he, if he comes out and says, I'm, I'm sad for my people and I want to go rebuild, the king might suspect him. Might, might suspect him of putting on the spa- face, might suspect him of manipulation, might suspect him of, you know, some sort of uh, insurgency here, you know, who knows? Um, some sort of traitorous behavior. So, then I was very much afraid, verse 2, what the king says. Hey, why do you look sad? You're not sick. This is nothing but a sickness of the heart. What's up? I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves—of course, is all Jerusalem—lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So he, boldly, confidently, speaks his speaks his mind, speaks his heart to the king. And here he's entrusted himself to God, that God would grant this miracle. King Artaxerxes, which has already shut it down, that he would reverse that decision. Verse 4, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Ooh, the tension gets even higher. Really, really dramatic in terms of uh, what's going on here. What are you requesting? Okay, then we're told in narrative manner, so I prayed to the God of heaven. I, I, the way I read that is that means right then, right there in his heart, in his mind, as fast as he could. Oh Lord, have mercy! <laughs> here we go. <laughs> this is we're on the knife's edge here. The king could very easily have my head. So I prayed to the God of Heaven, verse five, and I said to the king, "If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves." that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him. Now, we can speculate as to why this little anecdotal detail is thrown in here in parentheses. Who knows? Um, The study note speculates that perhaps um, the queen softened his heart or it was her presence that may have influenced us. We just don't know. But be that as it may, there she is, the queen sitting beside him. And the king said to Nehemiah, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a tithe. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. Okay, well, these letters are basically passports, right? So that um, he can travel and, and travel for this purpose. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. All right, so Nehemiah gets what he wants. He immediately gives thanks to God because he views this as the miraculous intervention of God. No doubt it was. Um, The king not only lets him go, but go to rebuild and to rebuild at the king's expense or at least in terms of the lumber and so they're going to get this there's some speculation as to whether this is referring to Lebanon you know, the same forest from which um, the trees were taken under Solomon and the first temple um, just details there but not to lose the forest for the trees But we have um, I'm getting better My dad jokes, my pastor jokes, really maturing nicely into a (laughs) fine wine. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, this is great news. This is great news. Um, And off we go. Now, do you think it's going to be smooth sailing? Of course not. Yeah, there's always opposition. And there's going to be bureaucratic governmental opposition. So here we go. But hasn't everything been nice heretofore? really kind of has. It's been a pleasant read. Not a lot of of tension, a lot of good things to consider. This rebuilding of Jerusalem is kind of a cool motif, too, because in many respects you can think of the the new and heavenly Jerusalem, which is the climax of Revelation and then really the climax of the canon. Remember, the, the heavenly Jerusalem descends like a bride, So who is it that's reconstructed and reconstituted and glorified that Jerusalem? Our Lord. And so you can see how Nehemiah going to reconstitute the earthly uh, Jerusalem is a kind of type and foreshadowing of that greater work that our Lord Jesus is going to do for us, for all who believe. Okay? So then verse uh, verse 9, unless you have any thoughts or questions on to verse 9. I see a hand. Maybe Vicar has something to add again.
2: Uh, just real quick um, it's. it may seem as though it, this is just an incidental detail in uh, chapter 2 verse 1 that it's. it was in the month of Nisan mm. that all of this took place but the month of Nisan is the first month of the Jewish calendar and um, the Passover is also celebrated in the month of Nisan mm-hmm. and Jews typically understand this month to be like their watchwords are new beginning and rebirth, renewal. Mm-hmm. So I find it wholly fitting in fact. Good, that, yeah. Uh,
0: and one more detail that connects us kind of back to the, um, the Exodus, mm-hmm. going back and then going forward, the new covenant which is established on Passover. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, one more kind of window into that whole, that whole theology. All right, very good. Cast On to, Oh yes, please.
1: Um, I may have missed this, but why does Nehemiah think he's the one that has to do it? I mean, obviously there are others.
0: Yeah, I mean isn't that kind of our problem? Yeah. <laughs> we see something that needs to get done that should he's be just, done, but oh, we th- but go. Go. we think it's my ah, it's not my responsibility. Isn't there a council position that's in charge of that?
1: <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, I like I it. I don't
1: know, but he takes it so, it's like personally.
0: Mm-hmm. He really does. Yeah, his, his heart is moved. You know, we read in, if we kind of connect the theology here, remember in Ezra, all the people who went down to, to rebuild the temple, their heart was moved by God, by the Spirit of God. Do you remember that? We would simply translate that and see that you know, upon hearing the plight of his people in that first section, verses one through three, Nehemiah's heart is moved by the Spirit. and he takes it upon himself to pray and he takes it upon himself to do. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. We have many people in our congregation, yeah, it's on a smaller scale, maybe not in the eyes of God. Remember the widows might. but we have many, many people in our congregation that do that the exact thing. Their heart's moved by God. There's something to be do, to, to be done. And they, they get to it. Yeah, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Precious in the sight of God. And um, while it may not get much earthly credit, there may not be a book in the Bible written about it, God sees. And the Lord Jesus cares. That's, a, that's the story of the widow's mite. He notices what no one else does. And he sees all that it means. Okay, so we're introduced to a couple of villains. San Sanbalat and Tobiah verse 9 then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters here are my passports and more than that here's my permission uh, to begin rebuilding now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen so he's not just going on, on his own that's nice but when Sanballat the Heronite and Tobiah the Ammonite well we know Ammonite that's bad Servant heard this. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. All right, study note. Sanbalat, probably governor of Samaria, one of the governors who received the king's letters, mentioned by Judeans in Elephantine, Egypt, as one who petitioned the governor of Judah regarding the rebuilding of the temple of Yahoo. i.e. Yahweh, He had a Babylonian name and is called by Haronite, perhaps because he was a descendant of the foreigners settled by the Assyrians at Beth-Horon, about 12 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And then Tobiah. Tobiah actually means the Lord is good. He's referred to as an Ammonite servant. may have been Sanballat's assistant or the king's servant as governor of Ammon, a land east of the Jordan. You can go see the color map, number three. All right, well, obviously, they don't. They see their power and prestige. This, say, you know, It says, threatened if Jerusalem were again fortified and became the center of a separate province headed by a governor. All right, so they're against it. Sambalot and Tobiah, they're against it. Kind of the main guy and his minion. Verse 11, so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate Location, location, location. You don't want to live near the dung gate. <laughs> oh, we don't know uh, more, about ga- <laughs> more about gates coming because um, because we're going to have a whole section about gates. Um, but if you look, but nobody knows nobody knows much about these gates or the dragon spring or anything else. If you look at the study note for verses 13 through 15, impossible to locate with certainty the gates, spring, and pool. Nehemiah left by the valley gate, which was in the west wall and opened into the Tyropian valley proceeding southward so he exits through the, through the east Yeah No it was in the west wall so he must have came out of the he must have come out the west down the south open to open to the Tyropian valley Proceeding southward he passed the dragon spring, location unknown, and the dung gate. Where else would the dung gate be but at the extreme south end of the wall? Turning north he came to the fountain gate, perhaps located near a spring named Enrogel. You can see first Kings one nine. Next he came to the king's pool, apparently a name another name for the pool of Siloam. Well, that we know of from John 9. The path close to the ruins grew so impassable that he was forced to continue through the Kidron Valley before turning back and entering again at the valley gate. These extensive ruins, likewise noted by archaeologists, show the great destruction wrought by the Babylonian conquest. All right, so it's kind of, uh, this may seem just like details to us, and I guess to a certain degree it is, but this will be a very dramatic scene in the movie. He comes out, he rides around just to see how bad it all is, and it's devastating. It's so devastating, he can hardly even navigate it in places. It's just utter destruction. It's a tour of destruction. It's a tour of the just punishment of God. Okay, so I inspected the walls of Jerusalem, just the last part of 13 again, that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Okay, well, what kind of derision? I mean, well, the contempt that it was all destroyed by the Babylonians, that remains and abides, um, that they had been able to rebuild the temple, but nothing else, that that had all kind of fallen short, and that their heritage is still destroyed. I mean, I don't, I don't know quite what this would be analogous to. You know, maybe if you had a rival in the HOA and they burned your hedges, and, and your hedges were just sitting there burned. You couldn't do anything about it, so you, it's not right until those hedges are right. And so tear them out and replant new hedges. <laughs> Can you tell I have an HOA? <laughs> All right. Alas, one of the evils of the modern age. Yeah, so this is, um, let's get this fixed so that we no longer have to suffer this shame, suffer this derision. Verse 18, and I told them, on the hand of my God that had been put upon me for good. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been put on me for good. So no doubt he mentioned his prayer. No doubt he mentioned um, how Artaxerxes' heart had been turned. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. And this is beautiful, you know, Nehemiah can't do it by himself. He has to have the people. They hear him, they respond, off he goes, off they go. Verse nineteen But when Sanbalat the Haronite, and Tobiah the Ammonite, Dun dun dun, servant of Geshen the Arab, heard of it, They jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. I love that. There's no guarantee. You know, you can work and labor all you want, but it's God who has to make you prosper. We saw that earlier in his prayer, back in chapter 1, verse 11. And give success to your servant. I can do everything right. Doesn't matter. Unless God gives success. Can use all my labors, all my energies, complete and total brilliance. (laughs) Doesn't matter. Unless God actually makes it prosper. Verse 20, then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. All right, well, Ezra went through this episode. Remember the rivals there that they met with the opposition with the temple and then they get the kings okay and then everybody wants to join in and Ezra and company are like, yeah, no. We're going to handle this ourselves. Um, A little bit of a parallel here and that the uh, other enemies have arisen now. No, you're not going to rebuild the gates. What, are you rebelling against the king's decree? Um, To which Nehemiah responds, of course, you're going to see that the king has decreed that we may build and um, you have no right or claim in Jerusalem. So nothing to do with you. All right, let's see if I can loiter a little bit because three gets hard. <laughs> yeah, the starting note on chapter uh, 2, verse 20, halfway down, Nehemiah rejected outside intervention in any form, just as Zerubbabel, that's what I meant by Ezra and company, of course, Zerubbabel and Joshua around at that time, had rejected the Samaritan offer to help build the temple. So, no help, we got this. No intervention. The king's on our side. Um, Let's look at at the note on chapter 3. This account of the repair and rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem lists the names of many individuals and specific places where they worked. That's why I said it's hard. Uh, And I was like, well, we could just skip this section. Uh, There's important stuff stuck in there. I don't think we're going to have to do it. You're going to have to put up with my mispronunciations. I apologize. Um, the, 40, uh, the 41 work details represent various social and professional classes. The high priest and other priests, goldsmiths and perfumers. They're even more important than the ancient world than now, if you can believe it. Without running water and deodorant have to have good perfumers. Rulers of districts, Levites, temple servants, merchants. This is an important source of information for the political and social life of Judah in the fifth century BC. So don't forget that as we're going through. (laughs) From it, we have a better understanding of the geography of Jerusalem, though the exact location of the nine gates I've got to go back and find a couple of those. I was trying to count as I went. Okay, of the nine gates and 18 other features mentioned, their exact location cannot be identified with absolute certainty. However, enough of the topography is known to establish that the walls on the four sides of the city are described in the following order. North wall, then the west wall, and there's verses attached to these. North wall, 1 through 5. West wall, 6 through 12. South wall, 13 through 14. East wall, 15 through 32. The original line of the east wall had to be abandoned and a new wall built on the ridge overlooking the Kidron Valley. The systematic manner of the project reflects Nehemiah's stature and character. Yeah, I mean, again, we're talking about um, really a kind of upper echelon type of guy. Also, deserving recognition is the way the people shouted enthusiastically, let us build. Chapter 2, verse 18, which showed they actually, quote, had a mind to work. End quote. Quotation from 4.6. And look at that. We're almost out of time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah I know future me is going to be upset with past me that we didn't just dive into this but let's, let's pause there and chapter 3 you're going to see it's the rebuilding of the wall as you can tell from the summary we're going to go wall by wall gate by gate people by people um, but there's some important stuff there's some, and there's some fun details in throughout all of this um, as you can see just looking ahead Typical form. Chapter 3, Rebuilding the Wall. Chapter 4, Opposition to the Work. Mm -hmm. I love it. All right, until next week, the Lord be with you.